Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. To Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6 this morning. When I was in middle school, or back then they called it junior high, I lived in Texas, and right before we moved to Colorado, it was after my eighth grade year, um, I had a best friend growing up, and his name was Muhammad. And Muhammad was from India. Muhammad was a Muslim. And he came over to my house almost every day to play basketball, to have fun. He was a, an avid reader. We would have contests growing up to see who could win all the competitions, the academic competitions as far as, as reading and things like that. And so it was the, the day before we were supposed to move to Colorado, and we were packing up things, and um, he came into my room and basically to come over to say goodbye. And we were, we were talking, and on my desk was an open Bible, just like this Bible up here on this pulpit. And he went and took the Bible, and he opened it, and he began reading the Bible. And you know what stupid Sean Cole, eighth grader, did in that moment? I took the Bible out of his hand, and I said, let's do something else, Muhammad. Let's go out and play basketball. You don't want to read that right now. So here was a Muslim kid that I had grown up with, with an open Bible in his hand. And I close it in his face and say, let's go out and play basketball. Because in that moment, I was so afraid. I was so afraid that he was going to ask me a question I didn't know how to answer. I was afraid that, I don't know what I was afraid of, but, but it, was, it was one of those moments in my life I wish I could take back. I've lived with regret ever since then that that may have been a moment that my friend would have been open to the gospel, and yet I was fearful, I was afraid, I didn't know what to do. I was paralyzed in fear in that moment. I think I actually quenched the Holy Spirit. And when it comes to sharing our faith, we all have those fears, don't we? Fear of rejection, fear that we're not going to know the answer, Fear that they're going to ask us a question. All those different types of fears come racing through our heads when we think about sharing the gospel with those that need to hear the good news. The Lord called Moses to be a preacher. And Moses was called to go toe-to-toe with the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. With a very simple message. You know the message, let my people go. And the first time that Moses did that, it backfired on him. Remember, back in chapter 6, things got majorly worse for the Israelites. The Pharaoh ratcheted up the harshness of the labor. He made them go out and find their own straws to make the bricks. And the people got really upset with Moses. And Moses, dejected, Moses upset, gets in God's face and says, Why have you done this to us, God? Why did you send me 
And if you remember last week, we heard God's answer in chapter 6. The Lord gives those gospel promises. If you remember from last week, God says, listen, I keep my word. I answer prayer. I rescue you out of slavery to sin. I've adopted you into my family, and I'm going to give you heaven. Those, those five gospel promises that we heard last week. But now comes the moment of truth where Moses and Aaron are going to have to go back again to the Pharaoh and ask him again, let my people go. And so how's it going to go this time? So as we come to this passage of scripture today, it's kind of like a movie trailer. You know, when you go to the movies and you watch a trailer, a preview of coming attractions, what we're about to launch into are the ten plagues, eventually leading up to the Passover. And so what we're going to see today is kind of a preview of a coming attractions. It's, it's basically the entire purpose of the Exodus in a little vignette, in a little preview of coming attractions. In a very concise way, it's going to tell us what the entire purpose of the Exodus is. So I've skipped over the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. You can go back and read all those names yourself. I thought that would be a fun sermon to preach, but uh, we're moving on. You guys can go back and read about the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. We're going to pick up in verse 28 at the end of chapter 6. So let's pick up Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 28. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Sound familiar, right? Saw that four times last week. I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Into chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old. When they spoke to Pharaoh. Here's the big idea, the overarching theme of what this short passage of Scripture is. The purpose of the Exodus is to reveal God's glory in both salvation and judgment. That's, that's a key theme that we need to understand. It's actually a key theme of the entire Bible. God reveals his glory in both salvation, we like that, and judgment. We see both of those in this passage of Scripture. Now, if you remember from last week, 
What did, what did, what did God tell Moses on four occasions? Remember, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. That is the ultimate key to understanding the book of Exodus. The ultimate issue that Pharaoh's going to have to face, the ultimate issue that the Egyptians are going to have to face, the ultimate issue the Israelites are going to have to face, the ultimate issue you're going to have to face is how do you respond to a God that looks you in the eye and says, I am the Lord? How are you going to respond to that? I am the Lord. That's the key issue. Well, how did Pharaoh respond the first time that Moses went to him? Do you remember? Go back to chapter 5. I know this was just a few weeks ago, but let's just go back to chapter 5, verse 2. The first time Moses goes in and says, let my people go, how does Pharaoh respond? Chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh laughs it off. I don't know who you're talking about, Moses. Who is this Lord? I mock this Lord. I laugh at this Lord. I have no idea who this Lord is. Who is this Lord? And that's the ultimate issue in the book of Exodus. Who is the Lord? Over and over again, God says, I am the Lord. How are you going to respond to the living God? So what I want to do this morning is I just want us to examine three principles that will help us understand God's glory in both salvation and judgment. And let me just say this, this message, we've had some really good messages the past few weeks that have been very uplifting related to the gospel. This one may be a little bit difficult. This is going to be a harder pill to swallow. But I pray that we all have ears to hear what the Lord says to us this morning. So three principles. Here's the first. First, we must faithfully share God's word regardless of the response. Faithfully share God's word regardless of the response. Now, Moses is the mouthpiece of God. Moses is going to have to go into Pharaoh with that authority behind him, God's authority, <clears throat> and go demand that the people be let free. And in chapter 6, verse 30, Moses again makes the excuse. He, he keeps talking about how he's not good at speaking. Behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? How, how's he going to listen to me? He's not going to listen to me. I'm, I'm little old Moses. I'm going in against the greatest man in all the world. I'm fearful. I don't want to speak to him. Why, why is he going to listen to me? In chapter 7, verse 1, God gives Moses a promise. I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Now, that's an interesting statement. I've made you like God to Pharaoh. In other words, not that Moses is going to be divine, but that Moses is going to be the very mouthpiece of God. When Moses goes in, and for the rest of the book of Exodus, all the way through, when Moses goes in and stands before the people, stands before the Egyptians, stands before Pharaoh, he's God's man. He's God's mouthpiece. He has the divine authority of God himself behind him. So when Moses speaks, it's not Moses who's speaking. Who's speaking? It's God who's speaking. Moses is just the mouthpiece. 
And what is he supposed to do? Look at verse 2. You shall speak all that I command you. Some of what I command you, Moses. Whatever you feel like sharing, Moses. Whatever Pharaoh wants to hear, Moses. Now you shall share all that I command you. You see, the world does not like authority. Have you noticed that? People don't like to be told what to do, what to believe. Especially a non-Christian world when it comes to the authority of God's word. When it comes to the authority of the scriptures, when it comes to the authority of God's world, the, the, the world is like Pharaoh. Who is this God? What right do you have to tell me what to believe? What right do you have to tell me how to live? I am in charge of my own life, thank you very much. I don't like the authority of God's word. Many of you are familiar with the, the poem Invictus. Invictus was written by um, William Ernst Henley back in 1875. You may not know the whole poem, but you probably know the last stanza. The last stanza of the poem captures this heart, uh, of this American psyche that we have, or we don't like people telling us what to do. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Who's in charge? I am, thank you very much. You don't have any right to tell me what to do. You have no right to tell me what to believe. That's where we live in that culture. So when we come with a message from God's word to a culture that doesn't want to hear it, they're like, Pharaoh, who's the Lord? What right do you have to tell me? And here's the legitimate fear of Moses. What's Moses' fear? Hmm, they're not going to listen to me. If I share all that God tells me, they're not going to listen to me. So there's one of two ways you can respond to a hostile culture that doesn't want to hear God's word. There's one of two ways you can do it. Number one, you can say, you know what? I'm afraid of the culture, so I'm going to water down the truth. I'm not even going to share the truth, or I may change and alter the truth to be more appealing to the culture. That's one thing you can do. Or you can say, you know what? Regardless of the response, I'm not going to alter God's word. I'm going to share it faithfully. Faithfully going to communicate this message, regardless of what the outcome is. So what does God tell Moses and Aaron to do? I want you to, to share all that I'm commanding you. Verse 2, you see it right there. You shall speak all that I command you. Now, go, back to, go, go down to verse 6. What do they do? Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. They didn't waver. They didn't change the message. They did what God had told them to do. They shared the whole counsel of God's word, not just picking and choosing what parts they liked and didn't like. Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 27. Paul says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I didn't shrink. 
I didn't get scared. I shared with you the whole counsel of God. And see, here's what, here's the tension we live in as Christians, and you feel it every day. If I share, if I tell people, if I even say I believe the whole counsel of God's word, wow, that puts me out there. That puts me on the wrong side. That makes me a target. That's scary. I don't know about this. The whole counsel of God's word. Now, verse 7 gives some great encouragement to those of you that are seasoned citizens. Moses was 80 years old. I like the way he, Moses puts that. Moses wrote Exodus. He puts that little detail in there. Hey, I was 80 years old and my brother was 83. So, some of you that are in your 70s and 80s, you may be thinking, you know what? My ministry days are behind me. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Let me just say this. Some of your better days may be ahead of you. God may use you in a powerful way in your seasoned years of life with the life experience you have, with you walking with the Lord, that you, you may have great days ahead. As a matter of fact, listen to what Psalm chapter 90, verse 10 says. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Excuse me, but their, but yet their span is but a toil and trouble. They are gone, and we will fly away. So the writer of this psalm, Psalm ninety, says, "If you're good, you may get to live till seventy. If you're really good, God may let you live till eighty. Now, who wrote Psalm ninety? Anybody want to know who wrote Psalm ninety? Moses. Moses wrote Psalm ninety. So don't think because you're in your 70s and 80s that your better days are behind you. God may still have a plan for you in the twilight of your life. I'm struggling with a cough this morning, so if I keep coughing, just bear with me. (coughs) Where's my lid? Uh, I'm not going to worry about it. I'll just leave it untucked or whatever. Um, Bob's going to get it for me. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, sir. So listen to what D.L. Moody said about being 80 or older. This is what D.L. Moody said. Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody, 40 years in the desert learning that he was nobody, and 40 years showing that God can, what God can do with the somebody who found out he was a nobody. I like that. So the first thing we see, the first principle we see in this passage of Scripture is Regardless of what the response is, we've got to share the, the, the message faithfully. The whole counsel of God's word. We, we can't water it down. We can't backtrack. We can't change it. We can't alter it. Okay, that's, that's response number one. That's, that's principle one, number one. What's principle number two? The second thing we see in this passage of Scripture. We must prepare for people to respond in hardened rebellion to God's word. In hardened rebellion to God's word. Now, this is where the passage gets difficult, and I want to spend a little bit of time here. Verse 3. It's going to come over, it's going to show up over and over again. So I, I'm addressing it now because it's going to keep showing up over the next few chapters. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land, Pharaoh will not listen to. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, some people, in order to lighten the blow here, have made the argument, 
Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And over time, after Pharaoh hardened his own heart, God responded by hardening Pharaoh's heart after he hardened his own heart. This text will not allow you to play that game. Because God says, I will harden his heart. And God's already said this twice before. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 19. Chapter 3, verse 19, what did God say? But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. Okay, chapter 4, verse 21. Chapter 4, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God says emphatically, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, what does this mean? Why is God hardening Pharaoh's heart? You see, here's what happens sometimes. When things are impossible to overcome, when things get difficult, when you're in, when you're in a mess, you often turn to your own resources, power politics, money, you try to, try, to, try to fix things yourself with all the resources you can muster, all these worldly resources. You try to come to your own rescue to try to save you by your own strength. And think about Israel for a moment. Where is Israel right now? They're in slavery. It's an impossible situation for them to get themselves out of. Humanly speaking, there's no way they're getting out of this. And so what does God do? God says, not only is it impossible, humanly speaking, for you to get out of it right now, I'm going to make it even harder for you, Israel. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart to make it even harder so that when you do get out, all you can point to is me as the only one that can do this. You can't get yourself out of this. You can't, you're not smart enough, Israelites. You're not powerful enough. It's going to have to be me and my glory. And so I'm going to just harden Pharaoh's heart to show you and show Pharaoh and show the world that it's only going to be me. Now, we need to think about the Egyptian culture for a moment. In the Egyptian culture, the Pharaoh was perceived as the embodiment of the gods. Ra, Horus, the different Egyptian gods. And because the Pharaoh was the incarnation of the gods, they believed that he was divine and that he had a perfect heart the pharaoh because he was a god in the flesh had a perfect heart that could rule the people as one of the gods so why does god harden his heart doesn't say god hardened his mind god hardened his heart god is doing something theological here he's basically saying that God alone is sovereign over all the false gods of the Egyptians. God is sovereign over the most powerful man in the land. God is going to release Israel by his own power alone. Now, I don't have a lot of time to go into this. So what I'm doing is I'm throwing out little cookies, little crackers, little snacks for you this morning. But you're going to have to go home and do some hard research yourself and, and, and come to some conclusions, okay? 
So I'm kind of teasing you this morning with some things, and you may leave scratching your head, or you may leave mad at me, or you may leave, leave like, hmm, that's purposeful this morning because I could spend two hours talking about this. But one thing I want to tell you is that the Bible teaches two simultaneous, simultaneous truths that go on side by side that are not in conflict. You go read from Genesis to Revelation, you will see these two things side by side all the time, and they're not in conflict. What are these two things side by side? Number one, God is absolutely sovereign over all things. You see that all through the Bible. Truth number two, human beings are morally responsible for their actions. Now, how that, those two things work together, don't ask me. I just work here, okay? <laughs> I know you guys pay me big bucks to be the theologian, but I can't answer that question. We don't fully understand how it works. So in some way, God can sovereignly harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will accomplish what God wants him to accomplish. Now, I'm not sure how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Bible doesn't tell us how God did it, just that he did it. But you have instances in the Bible where God has a sovereign decree that says, this is, what I'm gonna, this is what's going to happen, and God sovereignly has a plan, and people do freely what they want to do, not knowing that God has a plan, and they freely end up doing God's plan. And God doesn't hold a gun to their hand making them do God's plan. You tracking with me? God can sovereignly ordain something to happen, and it will happen, and people freely do what they want to do, and in doing what they freely want to do, do what God wanted to happen. Now, don't ask me how it all works together, but let me give you two examples from the Bible. The first example, I'll give you an Old Testament example, and I'll give you a New Testament example. First examples from the Old Testament. Think about Joseph and his brothers. What was the wicked thing that Joseph's brothers did to Joseph? They left him for dead. They threw him into a prison. They lied about his death to his father. They treated him evilly. Did God have to put a gun to Joseph's brothers' heads and say, you will treat Joseph badly? No. They freely treated Joseph badly because it's what they wanted to do. But yet in their doing that, they were doing exactly what God wanted them to do. Genesis 50, 20 gives this answer from Joseph. As for you, he's talking to the brothers. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me. You planned evil. You devised evil. You, you purposed evil against me. But God purposed it. God meant it. God planned it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So, so think about it this way. God had a plan. Joseph's brothers had a plan. God acted freely in his plan. Joseph's brothers acted freely in their plan. But Joseph's brothers did freely exactly what God wanted them to do. Without making them do it, they did it anyway. Don't ask me how it works, but the Bible teaches it. It's called compatibilism. God's sovereignty is compatible with human responsibility. All right, let's talk about a New Testament example. The cross of Christ. Was Jesus' crucifixion on the cross something God planned? Yes. Who killed Jesus? Roman soldiers put the nails in his hands and feet. The Jews were the ones that put him through the false trial. Pilate's the one that sentenced his death. 
Those all were doing exactly what God had predestined for them to do, yet they were doing it freely, not knowing what God's plan was. Did God have to hold a gun to Pilate's head and said, you will sentence Jesus to death? No. Did God have to hold a gun to the Roman soldiers and, and make them put the nails on? No, God didn't have to do that. They did that because they wanted to do it out of their own free will. But they were doing exactly what God had planned to take place. Now, how do you get that, Pastor Sean? Well, the early church tells us two passages in the book of Acts. Acts 2, 22 through 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, men attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Does that sound like God has a plan? Yeah, the definite plan. You, you personally crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God had a sovereign plan for Jesus to die. You did it. Was it God's plan? Yes. Did God act freely? Yes. Did the people act freely? Yes. Did the people do what God wanted to happen? Yes. Acts chapter 4, 27 through 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod, okay, there's, a, there's an actor, Herod. Pontius Pilate, second person listed. Along with the Gentiles, okay, the Roman soldiers. And the peoples of Israel, the Jewish leaders. So four people. Pilate, Herod, the Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers. What did they do? Verse 28. They did whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. I mean, I could give you dozens of examples in the Bible where God has a sovereign plan and people act freely, and in freely acting, they do exactly what God wanted them to do. We could go on all day about that. I'm just giving you two. Now, here's the hard part. Here's the difficult pill to swallow. The Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In the Joseph narrative, in the cross narrative, the people acted freely to do what they wanted to do. It didn't say God hardened Joseph's brother's hearts to do what they did. It doesn't say God hardened Pilate's heart to do what he did. We don't have that language. We have the language of hardening here with Pharaoh, which makes us scratch our heads to be like, what is going on here? And you have to stop and ask a question. If you're just reading the Exodus story and you've never read it before, it seems really strange for God to go tell Moses, hey, go into Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And by the way, I'm going to harden his heart so he doesn't do it. Well, thanks, God. That makes it real easy for me. Wouldn't it have been a whole lot easier for God to do an instantaneous miracle to open Pharaoh's heart and just let the Israelites just waltz on out of, of Egypt? Now, could God have done it that way? Absolutely God could have done it that way. Did God do it that way? No. Now, here's the question you have that I can't answer. Why did God do it that way? The Bible doesn't tell us. It just says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart to do that. Now, here's the other hard thing we've got to think about. Is Pharaoh a special case, or is this the way God deals with all sinners? Does God actively harden people's hearts, or is this just a specific case of Pharaoh? Some of you may not be ready to hear this, and I totally understand this, but the Bible deals with it, so we have to. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 9. 
the hardest passage of Scripture in the New Testament, not to understand, but to come to grips with. And like I said, there may be some of you that just aren't ready to hear this, and that's totally fine. I understand that. But as your pastor, we've got to deal with what's in the Bible. You know those commercials for Prego? What's, what's the tagline for Prego? It's in there. <laughs> it's in there. <laughs> so we're going to have to deal with it if it's in there. Romans chapter 9, 17 through 24. Romans 9, 17 through 24. Again, I can't in a 30 to 45 minute message unpack all of this. So this may leave you with more questions, but I, I hope this drives you to go study the Bible for your own. And if you have more questions, come afterwards and talk to me or email me. I love to talk to you, but I, I just want to expose you to these things because you need to understand that they're in the Bible. Um, Romans 9, 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, this is Paul comment, commenting on what we just saw. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this. However you understand the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, however you understand Romans chapter 9, you can have differences of opinion upon that. There, there's different ways to view that. You can't get away from the fact that God did it. And he did it for a very specific purpose, to show his power. Now, we can get into the theological weeds about hardening of hearts, and we can talk about God's plan and purpose and all that fun stuff. That's a discussion for a different day. I want to bring this back to how this impacts how you, how you share the gospel with lost people. We, we, can, we can theorize about people's hardened hearts and Pharaoh, but where you live, you're going to leave this place and go talk to a friend or a family member or a coworker who doesn't believe the Bible, and they're going to be resistant. And they're going to be hard of heart. And so sometimes, what do we think? Man, if I'm just eloquent enough, if, I'm just, if I just spout off the truth enough and, and do it really creatively, they'll accept my message. If I'm just persuasive enough, if I could just twist their arm enough, if, if I was just persuasive enough, they would, they would believe my message. So sometimes, what do we want to do? My goal is not to share the truth, but to get the response I want. So we'll bend the truth to get the response we want. Do we share the gospel faithfully, even though there will be rebellion and resistance? This week I was thinking about this because we, we dealt with this a few weeks ago on Wednesday nights when we were going through the book of Revelation. It, it came up again this week. So I want to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians. I know we're just in Romans and we're jumping all over the place. But just turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Because I think this, Paul tells us the struggle that happens when you really, if you really want to be faithful to share the whole gospel to a culture that doesn't want to hear it, you feel that tension. You feel that temptation to want to change the message. 
And so here's what Paul says is going to happen, the reality. The reality of what's going to happen. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. <coughs> but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Okay, stop right there. When we go out and we share the gospel and we live for Jesus, we're spreading the fragrance of God out there to everybody. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Your life is the fragrance of Jesus. Your life is to smell like Jesus. It's a wonderful fragrance. Okay, that sounds really awesome, doesn't it? Well, listen to what Paul keeps on saying here. Verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who's sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Do you see the tension Paul says? Here's what happens. When you go out and you live for Jesus and you share the gospel and you share the truth and you don't water it down, to some who are going to be saved, it's going to be the aroma of life. It's going to be attractive. They're going to be drawn to the gospel. They're going to want to hear it. Because God's sovereignly working on their hearts to come to faith. That's one response you're going to get. The aroma of life. But what does Paul say is the other way? The other response you're going to get is an aroma of death. You ever been around a stinking corpse? A decomposing body? The smell of death? For some people, your message is going to smell like death. And they're going to turn their nose up to it. They're going to stick their hand out to it. They're going to be resistant. They're going to be hostile. It's the last thing they're going to want to hear. But you can't change the message. What's the temptation? I better change the message so it doesn't smell so bad. And what does Paul say? Who's sufficient for these things? This is a hard thing. This is a hard thing because if I'm going to be faithful to the word of God, it's going to mean some people are going, to, are going to receive it as the smell of death. That makes me fearful. That makes me want to change it. That makes me want to backtrack. And that makes me maybe not want to share it. Who's sufficient for these things? But then what does Paul say? We're not going to peddle God's word. We're not going to change God's word. We're not going to shift God's word. We're not going to adjust God's word. We're not going to water it down to make it appealing to those that may perceive it as death. I'm just going to share it and let the chips fall where it may. Because if I share this truth, I'm going to have to realize, for some people, they're going to receive it as the aroma of life. For others, the aroma of death. But I can't not share it. You see, the Bible cuts both ways. To those that God is drawing to himself in salvation, it's going to be beautiful. To those that are going to reject it, it's going to smell awful. That's why the writer of Hebrews says this about the word of God. Hebrews 4, 12-13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
What does God's word do? It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. When you share God's word, it's going to go like a dagger into people's hearts. And for those that are pierced and it's the aroma of life, it's going to open up and they're going to be like, I need Jesus. I can see it. For others, it's going to pierce in them and they're going to hate it. And we're like, I don't want anything to do with it because I'm naked and I'm exposed. So we need to be prepared for those two responses. But here's the third principle for this morning. You will know the Lord either by salvation or judgment. You will know the Lord. Now, look at verse 4. Let's go back to Exodus. I know we jumped out, but let's go back to Exodus chapter 7, verse 4. God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's not going to listen. Verse 4. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, my hand. Literally in the original Hebrew, I'm going to smite Egypt. I'm going to thump Egypt. I'm going to unleash plagues on Egypt. I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my people of the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Great acts of judgment. That word judgment there means judgment by vindication. God's going to vindicate the Israelites who after 400 years of being in slavery, he's finally going to release. It's going to be a vindication. I'm vindicating you, Israelites, for the 400 years that you've been under these harsh taskmasters. I'm going to bring you out in mighty acts of judgment. The metaphor of God's hand plays an important role in the book of Exodus. God will lead Israel out by his hand, God will put his hand on the Egyptians. Which hand of God do you want? The hand of salvation or the hand of judgment? Think about the imagery here. Do you want an open palm of God saying, come to me in salvation? Or do you want the back of God's hand slapping you and smiting you in judgment? What's the overall purpose of God's judgment? Why does God do this? Well, we find the answer. Why is God going to do this? Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Why does God bring judgment? Why is God doing what he's doing? Well, look at verse 5. The Egyptians shall know what? I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the people of Israel out from among them. That's the key to the entire thing here. God is going to reveal his glory both in salvation and judgment. The Egyptians are going to know. Now, does that mean the Egyptians are going to bow and worship Yahweh as the one true Lord? No. But it does mean they can't deny his power. You see, here's the thing. There's a lot of people that can give lip service to God. There's even people that can actually pray for miracles. People that can say, oh God, if you just give me this, I promise I'll lift you. There's a lot of people that look at the power of God. 
want the power of God, pray for the power of God, but they will not get to that point in their life where they will bow the knee and they will confess with their lips, you are my Lord. I want your power, but I don't want your lordship. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Remember last week, chapter 6, God says to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I'm going to take you to be myself. I'm going to save you from slavery. I'm going to, I'm going to be true to my word. I'm going to keep my covenant. I'm going to bring you to the land of promise. I'm going to do all these things so that you will know I am the Lord. And God turns around to the Egyptians and says, I'm going to punish you so that you will know that I am the Lord. In both salvation of his people and in the judgment of the wicked, God puts his glory on for all to see that he is the Lord. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow. That God's glory is on display in both his salvation and in judgment. But he's doing this so that the Egyptians will know. You see on that final day of judgment, every single person who's ever lived will know that he's the Lord. There are no atheists on that final day. Everyone will know that he's the Lord. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 10 through 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this does not mean that everybody will become a Christian. This does not mean that everybody's going to get saved in the end. What it does mean is that every single person who's ever lived in hell and in heaven will acknowledge the absolute sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ as I am the Lord. For those of us who are in heaven, for those of us who are his people, it will be a day of joy. It will be a day of, uh, of gladness. We will confess that with so much joy. For those that have rejected him, they will still confess that, but with hatred on their lips. But they can't deny that he is the Lord. So the issue is not, do you know the Lord? That's not the issue. Everyone will know that he is the Lord. The question for you is in what manner? How will you know the Lord? Will you know his open hand of salvation welcoming you in? Or will you know him from his hand of judgment because you've rejected him? So let me give you a warning this morning. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. The writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Don't have an unbelieving heart. Some of you this morning may just be hardened to the gospel truth. You hear it over and over again, and you just tune it out. Or you suppress it. 
Or you think, I'll get my act together another day. You don't want to come to grips with the fact that he's the Lord. And maybe some of you mock it. The Bible here says today, not tomorrow, today, if you hear his voice. If you have been in this worship service this morning, you've heard his voice. Through the mouthpiece, just like Moses, my mouthpiece, you've heard God's voice in the scripture speaking to you this morning. Do not harden your heart. Instead, what should we all do? We should come in brokenness, we should come in humility, and we should bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when you bow before Jesus, when you trust in Jesus, when you give your life to Jesus, what do you receive? The open hand of salvation. If you reject Jesus, if you walk away from here in rebellion, you receive the severe backhand of Jesus. Every single person that will leave this place will know that he's the Lord. The question is, do you know him as your Savior or do you know him as your judge? So today is the day. You may not have another chance. You may walk out of this place and you may not know what happens next. That's why the Bible's so, so um, focusing on today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Submit, surrender, lay it all down before this king who says to all of us, you will know that I am the Lord. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Father, would you take the seed of your word that has been sown this morning Father, my prayers, it falls on good soil. Lord, I don't want it to fall on the stony soil or the thorny soil or the hard-packed soil. But Lord, would it fall on good soil to where people would hear it and understand and that the word would take root and there would be true salvation and true transformation this morning. I ask this in your name, Lord, and for your glory. Amen.